0: This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, you've been asking for an episode on flight school. Well, you got it. But I hope you're ready for what you're about to get yourself
1: into. So you never know where it's going to take you. And as long as you have the desire to be successful and you put the time in and you just, you don't let anything, because you're going to have bumps in the way, you're going to have bad events and bad days, stuff's going to happen that make you question, is this the right career choice? Everyone has it at some point. You just got to buckle down and, and got it out and get through it because it's, it is the best job in the world.
2: Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Hello, everyone. This is, Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's our musician Jaime Lopez having a little fun. Thank you for that, Jaime, and thanks for all the great tunes. Anyway, hello, everybody. This is Vincent Aiello, and welcome to episode 25 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We are talking Navy flight school today, and a little primer for that was a snippet of our upcoming interview and a new song for September, as well as some bumper comms. Taken from the movie Independence Day, which features some F 18 flying from a Marine squadron. That is not fictional, it is real, and in fact, it is the squadron our guest comes from as a junior officer. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. And it is a long episode, so we're going to probably skip straight to it. But I do want to take a moment and make one quick announcement. And that is, this episode is being released on September 1st, 2018. And this past week, Naval Aviation and the United States of America lost a hero. John McCain passed away. He was not only a Congressman and Senator who was devoted to serving the public, but he was also a former A-4 pilot who was shot down in Vietnam and was a prisoner of war while his dad was the boss of the entire Pacific Fleet. So he was harshly treated and has served our country admirably. So we just want to throw a nickel on the grass, as the expression goes, for John McCain and give our best to his family, including his mother, who is still alive at, I believe, about 106 years old. So our thoughts and prayers to the McCain family. All right, so like I said at the beginning, you have been asking for an episode on flight school. I finally wrangled the guy to talk about it. He is local here in San Diego and he knows everything you want to know. So without any further ado, strap on because this is a long one, a lot of detail. But even those of you who probably won't have a chance to ever go through it, I still think you'll learn something and be entertained. So stick around and we'll meet back up at the end.
2: I'm Fly, I'm Pilot.
0: All right, today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have our very first Marine joining us. Major Mike Walsh, BS, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, bud.
1: Hey, thanks, Joe. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, well, sorry it took 25 episodes, but this should be the 25th, so, you know, we're building up to a, there you go. a big, uh, big event there on the mile marker there, 25. Okay, excellent. Well, people are going to love this episode because they have been asking for a discussion on flight school. So we're going to find out in a moment where you are and what you know about. And so let's just jump right into it. Let's start with where are you from? How would you get in the military? And what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, so I'm from uh, Milton, Mass, just outside of Boston. One of uh, four brothers. Um, played every sport growing up. Just kind of typical, you know, child growing up. And then in terms of the, uh, the military, I, I didn't have a whole lot of military in the family. I think My uh, grandfathers both were in World War II, but that's pretty much it. And we didn't have any aviators in the family either, but I just always had kind of this burning desire to be a pilot and to be a military pilot. And then when I was in high school, uh, I saw and learned about really the Marine Officer Candidate School uh, and kind of what options they had in terms of aviation and said, hey, I think that's for me. Uh, My dad had a lot of friends that were Marines and they were always just just the best guys. And so I had a really high opinion of Marines in general. And then I figured out what could be better than being a Marine, but being a Marine pilot. So I went to college, graduated in 2006. Where'd you go? I went to St. Anselm College. Uh, it's up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. I played a little hockey up there and then uh, went into the Marines in uh, 2006.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so you went through our subject for today, which is flight school. We can skip that for the moment. And then give us a little rundown on what some of your tours were.
1: Yeah. So did the flight school thing. We'll get into that in a second. And then I went through uh, VMFAT 101. That's the F-18 Fleet Replacement Squadron where you learn how to fly the Hornet. Did that for about a year and change, and then I went over to VMFA 314, the Black Knights, uh, just down the flight line up at Miramar in uh, San Diego. I did five years there, roughly, uh, ended my tour there as the uh, pilot training officer, Uh, saw some uh, combat over in Operation Inherent Resolve, did a couple of deployments to uh, the CENTCOM area, and uh, one uh, rotation through the Pacific, so kind of uh, all over the place in a relatively short period of time.
0: Okay, and so where are
1: you now? So right now I'm back at 101 as an instructor, so it's kind of come full circle a little bit. Uh, started as a student, did the fleet thing, and now I'm back at 101 as a as an instructor teaching the new uh, up-and-coming guys and gals how to do it in the, uh, in the F.A. 18
0: Excellent. Okay, and that is the subject for today. Now, you being a Marine, you went through what we will just call the U.S. Navy Flight School, and at some point, hopefully, I've already got a candidate picked out, but maybe we can do a version of this episode with the Air Force, but for today we'll talk about Navy. Now, it's not just Navy, right? So obviously the Marine Corps as well, that's right. yep. Coast Guard. Uh, anyone else go through the Navy's training?
1: We have, uh, when I was down there, this is uh, about 10 years ago, so we had some uh, international students. I remember we had some um, some Italian and some uh, Indian students, mm-hmm. uh, officers over there as well. We had the Coasties were there, some Air Force guys and gals, and of course the Marines and, sure. and the Navy.
0: Right, okay, and that's probably the bulk of it. All right, so let's jump right in. So to lay the groundwork in my own head, uh, when I went through flight training in 1992, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's, when I yeah exactly um, from when I was commissioned, I showed up in Pensacola, Florida. The first thing I went through was API or Aviation Pre-Indoctrination. I think they used to call it about six weeks, and they taught us a little bit of aero, weather, etc. But all ground training. Then I went to Milton. Right outside of Pensacola there and flew the T-34 for basic. Then I went to Meridian, Mississippi, flew the T-2C Buckeye for intermediate. It stayed in Meridian, Mississippi for the TA-4J Skyhawk and advanced, which is where I went to the boat for the first time and then received my wings. And like you, I went to VMFAT 101, except at the time it was up in El Toro, Orange <laughs> County, California. That was the best year of my life.
2: I bet. And uh, <laughs> had a
0: great time. So what is it like now from when a, a person is commissioned? I understand they don't call it API anymore. And so give us a quick overview like I just did, and then we'll just jump into each segment of the
1: training. Yeah, I think um, what I went through is very similar uh, to what you went through. And uh, the the syllabus probably hasn't changed a whole lot um, in a long time. And it's probably for a good reason because it's a pretty good syllabus, uh, I think. And it, it really does produce a good product in the end. But, yeah, like you said, the, the API stuff or whatever they're calling it these days um, Focuses a lot on the academic portion, uh, just the basics, understanding the environment you're going to fly in, weather, understanding how your airplane is going to operate, um, some instrument flight rules, engines, stuff like that, uh, just a good primer. For me as a criminal justice major, to say that I was a bit in over my head was an understatement. Didn't really have any technical background. I have never touched an airplane prior to the military, so I'm surrounded by a lot of uh, very smart people who went to you know an Embry-Riddle or had some general aviation experience and were sitting there half asleep in these... Uh, classes and and just doing great on the test and I'm sitting there burning the midnight oil just to break even so that was a bit of an eye-opener for me and that was that was out of the gate um right right off the bat but in in terms of the rest of it I'd say where our paths probably changed just a little bit you know like you, I did the T-34C at Whiting and then I went down to um NES Kingsville in Texas to fly the T-45 uh for the bulk of my jet training we didn't fly the T-2 that got phased out by the time I got into um intermediate and advanced uh, training. And by the time I actually got there, we were strictly T-45C model, which was a T-45, but it had um, a glass cockpit, kind of digital avionics, uh, a heads-up display, much like you would find an F-18 or a Harrier or or, uh, a fleet-level aircraft.
0: Okay. All right. So essentially, it's pretty much the same. You've got some ground school, then you've got the three phases, except without... The third airplane. So you basically have two aircraft now for at least the jet pilots.
1: That's right. And, okay. and even nowadays, they don't even fly the T-34 um, down in Whiting or Corpus. It's now the T-6. Right. Uh, the Texan, Texan 2, I think it's yep, called. Yeah. Two. I didn't get a chance to fly that. It looks like a great airplane. The guys that uh, have come through um, to me now that flew that love it. They said it was a good time and it's a real capable plane.
0: Okay. So let's start back at the beginning. So first off, criminal justice. So you don't have to be an aerospace engineer or Anything else? I mean, I had a friend Dud who was on episode, I believe five, it was on aerial refueling. Who was a music major. Yep. So, I mean, they, they didn't—they didn't turn you away with a criminal justice major, obviously.
1: No, it's a great question. You know, because when I grew up, uh, you know, the limited exposure I had to aviation, everyone told me, you know, math, math, math. You have to be a rocket scientist, quite literally, a rocket scientist to be a pilot. And you know, I'm pretty good at math. I can—I can do it uh, to a to a pretty decent level. But I am not a mathematician by any stretch of the imagination. So I was a little nervous uh, at how a, you know a liberal arts criminal justice background would fare uh, in a perceived technical, mathematic world of aviation. But to my surprise, that background actually benefited me much more, I thought, than a more technical background in the sense that a lot of the stuff we do in training, someone will quite literally slide a notebook across a table that's about, looks like a 9X phone book for those of you who can remember what that looks like, a couple inch thick. A lot of pages, really small type, and they'll expect you to know the thing inside and out. And so your ability to uh, consume an enormous amount of information, understand it, conceptualize it, and then translate that into performance in an airplane is really what flight school is all about. And as a criminal justice major, uh, at the time I was, I was thinking either tracking towards law school to be an attorney or to go to flight school and uh, obviously pick the right choice there. But that that background, I'm just, you know, reading a, a case file of, you know, a lengthy case file and just kind of following the breadcrumbs and how that worked out and be able to piece that together was actually invaluable by the time I got to be, uh, you know, a pilot or a flight student, at least. Sure. I know quite a few of my friends who were, had this similar kind of criminal justice history, kind of non-technical background, had that same fear going into the training, uh, but they quickly realized that that was a huge benefit mm. um, of, of training and it sure. stands true today.
0: Interesting. So in the case of yourself as a Marine, you have to go to the basic school in Quantico Mm -hmm. first. We'll skip that for today. Okay. And then everybody shows up ready to start what we used to call API, and I think it's called something different now. But even before that, aren't students now, have you heard of this? I think they're giving some of these guys uh, some sort of like Cessna flights or some sort of flights right right at the beginning.
1: Yeah, so we did. And what's the idea for that? we, We had a program, I believe it was called IFS, and I think it stood for something like introductory flight screening. Okay. And um, screening is an interesting term because it, it was that. Um, the Navy, they wanted to potentially assess your aptitude to fly. How do you do that? For me, I never touch an airplane short of getting on a Delta flight out of Boston to go on vacation, right? So, you know, I'm supposed to get in this plane and, and, and function at a... I didn't even know what level I was supposed to operate at because I didn't know how to do it. But they were just looking to see, is this guy trainable? Can we get him to a certain level? I didn't really... I didn't understand that whole program. I just thought I was going to get five to ten hours in a Cessna and, you know, kind of bomb around southern Florida and and have a good time, um, not knowing that it was actually a very serious thing. And there was people that didn't make it through that, which I found out, you know, along the way, you realize, hey, we're so-and-so. And And they were like, he didn't, you know, make it through the IFS portion. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that was that, uh, that serious. And it was. It was really serious. Wow.
0: I think what they're trying to do, my guess is, is just see if you're aeronautically adaptable earlier in the process. Because if we send a guy through six weeks of ground school, you're not going to find it out. Then you get him into the syllabus, and he's there with everyone else. And if he just can't get over air sickness or just for whatever reason, is not adaptable, then yeah. you find that out sooner. They're just looking,
1: so, to, it's, they're just looking for the basics. You know, okay. Is this person somewhat athletic, coordinated? Can right. they talk on the radio? And believe it or not, some people, just, it's just not in the cards for them and that's where it comes out. And that's okay. generally the, the people who don't make it. A very small percentage don't make it through, though.
0: So a handful of flights, orientation, mm-hmm. you're expected to do something just because they want to see if you can put forth the effort and do some basic monkey skills, I'll call them, for lack of anything better. And then, so now we've already touched on it, but then you have some dedicated ground school. So we talked about some theory, right, aero, weather. At least when I went through, I think they even did, like, engines, jet engines and whatnot. Yep, that's
1: right. Yep, jet yeah. engines. There was um, a navigation portion that I remember being stressful, a couple of aerodynamic classes, mm-hmm. um, weather, just kind of the basic, uh, you know, kind of fire hose of academics. Okay. Pretty so you
0: went from a a guy from Massachusetts who knew nothing basically, about flying, to, by the end of this story here in a few minutes, a guy who is a combat wingman qualified to rain, death, and destruction from above in an F-18. So we've got you now through the selection. We've got some basic knowledge in your head. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing you could do is go to primary. So Mm -hmm. like you said, you and I both did that in the T-34 Mentor, Mm -hmm. little low-wing trainer, sit tandem. That's a fun little airplane, actually. These days, they fly the T-6. But what happens in basic? I mean, the word kind of... Gives us the answer, but what are we doing in the first phase of actual flight training?
1: Yeah, so once you once you get through all that stuff, uh, which is it's a it's a long road. Um, you'll go through some more academics that's that are specific to either the T thirty four or nowadays the T six. Just so you again, you know, you understand how that plane works and and the systems and how the landing gear works, the propeller, all that stuff. Um, and then you do some basics you know here we call course rules, how to depart the uh, the field, how to go out to the various areas to do your aerobatics and your flights, and how to get back to the field most importantly, um, just just the basics and then ultimately, I think that lasted about a month, probably like six weeks or so, and then uh, you were ready for your first uh, first flight in the in the airplane and that was pr- i 'll never forget my first flight um, i 've flown countless flights since since then, but there 's always a couple that stick out, and that one is certainly one that I remember and you get what uh, what's called an onwing, which is essentially uh, it's like a tactical mentor that it's like a big brother that that monitors your progress throughout the entire course of training, um, and you develop a relationship with them, which is great. And you, you do the majority of your initial flights with your specific onwing and develop a good relationship, which which is great. Luckily for me, I had a fantastic onwing um, that I'm, I still talk to to this day, I should say and we had we had a really good time uh but essentially you show up into a uh into a briefing room it can be it's very nerve-wracking because there's a guy sitting across from you that's been in the marine corps or been in the navy or or the air force or whatever for mm-hmm. numerous years he's been probably deployed a handful of times maybe been in combat but has a ton more experience whatever his background is than you do and you know quite literally they can ask you anything and everything about what you're doing that day anything about the airplane um, and it's, it's nerve-wracking. And so we usually brief for about um, 30 to 60 minutes, and, hey, here's uh, a quick safety brief. Here's what we're going to do today. There's, there's always some uh, questions of the day that you're expected to know as a, as a student going into those events. Um, and it's, it's not really a secret what you have to prepare for. Um, so they, they give you all the information. They tell you what you need to succeed. It's a matter of, again, going back to consuming an, an inordinate amount of information and being able to use that. It goes back to that because you show up to the briefs, and luckily for me, I was pretty good at memorizing stuff, and I could uh, answer a question, you know, correctly based on what I had read, you know, the night before, in um, in somewhat intelligent manner, and uh, it usually worked out pretty good. Because it, a lot of times, unfortunately, there's guys and girls that they don't let go out to the airplane after a brief, and they just they just didn't have their head in the game that day, and they didn't prepare appropriately uh, for whatever reason, and they they won't even take you out to the airplane. You just you just. Try to go again, and, uh, uh, either the next day or whatever. So, like a
0: ready room down kind of thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: They just—it's an unsat um, yeah. that isn't even involved. And you haven't even touched the airplane right. yet. Um, and I, I think a, a guy that I was—I um, wasn't really f- uh, too close to friends with this guy, but um, we crossed paths a little bit in early stages. That I think he had um, maybe one or two flights, and, and he was essentially uh, discontinued from training after yeah. the second flight. So that definitely got all of our attention.
0: Well, I think, and you can touch on this skipping ahead now a little bit, being an instructor at a training squadron. I have to think when you sit down with someone, you can probably get a pretty good idea in the first, what, couple minutes whether they have prepared sure. sufficiently. Sure, Because you either have confidence because you know the answer or you've at least looked at it, and even if it's skipping you at that moment, but or you don't. And this is a full-time job. I mean, you're not doing anything else when you're going through flight school. Correct. So I would think that in the case of your friend you were talking about, he probably either had some other distraction or just didn't give it the seriousness it deserved. But I remember yeah. when I went through, there was there was nothing more important to me at that period of, of my life. And I, I used to sit in the living room and put a soup spoon in one hand and a salad spoon in the other, <laughs> and I pretended I was flying. Because, sure. you know, you have to be able to say the calls and do certain things with the levers. And to your point, I mean, I have a little bit of flight experience, not very much, but it was also new, and it comes so fast. you got to do what it takes.
1: I would say, it, to make uh, you know, a civilian comparison, it's almost like if you took you know, exam week in college for, or high school, for example, the, the preparation for that, but it just doesn't stop. It's nonstop. You take that and you overlay that with you know, maybe like a, a playoff sport event, and you, if you could somehow combine those two every single day – that's essentially flight school because it, it's really it's mentally exhausting, it's physically exhausting, and it's very demanding. For sure.
0: And as soon as you get a grip on whatever stage you're in, then you move on to the next stage. So for a couple of years, it's it's nonstop. Now, what are the different phases of basic? In other words. You start, like you said, with a little bit of ground school, and you learn a ton of emergencies. I felt like yeah. that was all I learned at first yeah. was how to handle. I-, I thought, teach me how to fly the thing, and then I'll handle emergency. But it seemed like the first thing we did was, okay, if your engine fails, this is what you're going to do. Sure. But you start with some basic flying. You said you remember your first flight. I do as well. And what are some of the other phases of flying you do in basic?
1: Yeah, right off the bat, uh, I-, I believe it was called contact stage, where uh, it's basically you go out to the plane, you just practice taxiing around on the ground, which is everyone kind of laughs at until you try to do it your first time, and you, you're all over the place. And once like you a find driver, you do. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you're watching like a like a little kid trying to drive a vehicle, and it, right. it can be kind of funny. But uh, eventually, you find the end of the runway, and uh, you take off. And basically, you just get uh, used to flying the airplane. You do some basic aerobatics, uh, some basic stalls, just so you know how to recover from you know an upset attitude, uh, and some spins, which I remember are mi- were mildly. Um, an emotional experience for some people. Emotional? Well, some people got really sick, uh, okay. uh, unfortunately. Um, I, I, at the time, I would not say that I had a cast iron stomach uh, myself, so I can sympathize with people a little bit there, but some people got really sick hmm. uh, and they just would, I could see, you could see them in the ready room just waiting to go on their flight and they were just not looking forward to it because they, they knew it was going to have to wait for them, but, Luckily, I didn't have too much issues with that. And, and, yeah, that's when you really start to enjoy it. And you just go out there and you, and you practice landing uh, the landing pattern and getting comfortable repeatedly just over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, landing the airplane the way uh, that the Navy uh, wants you to, and it's a good way to, to land an airplane. Um, and then once from there, I think we went on to the formation stage, which they, had, they put another plane out there, and they say, okay, well, I want you to fly probably way too close to another airplane for a while and just follow me around southern Alabama for, for half an hour Uh, Which is kind of cool though, because that's you start to everything we do is a building block approach. So you start to fly the airplane first, you get comfortable, and then they say, okay, well let's fly, let's do something somewhat realistic and fly off a lead now. And you practice the various positions, a little bit close, a little bit further back, uh, some some mild kind of maneuvering as a as a two ship. Um, And then um, I think the last thing we did was um, more of an instrument kind of top off. So how to how to operate, you know, away from Pensacola, in in a more uh, realistic. FAA controlled environment mm-hmm. in in bad weather. So, uh, Pensacola, the weather can be okay. Uh, you know, you get the afternoon thunder showers, and a lot of times the instrument stuff. Quite literally, there's a there's a I think it was a canvas hood we pulled over right. the front because it wasn't. You know, you just couldn't rely on the weather for training. We made our own bad weather, and you operate just strictly on instruments. You couldn't see out the window.
2: Yeah.
1: For me, I, I got kind of lucky. I remember I remember I did a, um, a cross country from Pensacola up to uh, Chicago Midway in a T thirty four which cool. looking back is a terrible idea. That's <laughs> yeah, a busy uh, airport. It's a busy airport. Uh, and there's some real weather. Uh, I, I think it was in the winter time or maybe the, maybe the it, spring was just around the corner. So the weather wasn't great. Uh, and I got some actual, no kidding instrument time there. Um, and I, I got yelled at plenty by some very, um, animated controllers up in the Chicago area. <laughs> you think you, it sounds like you're talking to Mike Dicka uh, you know, for about 30 minutes, getting yelled at. And, I'm trying to sequence in between seven thirty sevens and and they're not too happy with me, and I'm just trying to get get out of the way and get on deck because this is just my my fun meter was pegged, yep uh, but yeah, and we pretty much did that, and that was that was it i believe for the um for the basic stuff. it all kind sure. of culminated in the instrument,
0: yeah, I remember doing some night flying. As well?
1: Yeah, we'd have a yeah, little knife flying throughout there.
0: And then they would throw in a lot of the high-altitude or low-altitude power losses since mm-hmm. you were flying a single-engine aircraft, so yep. they would constantly mess with you. Hey, what if you lose your engine right now, and you'd fly a certain profile? And I remember either you look down and say, ooh, I could land there, so we're good, or hey, you know what, there's no good place to land, let's pretend to bail out, and of yep. course you stop the simulation there. Yep. And then I think also in the formation stage, at least I was paired with someone, and then by the end, like the last formation flight, there was two of us students that were solos, and a third who was a lead. Mm. And we'd go out and do some breakup and rendezvous. And, and then the, I remember the culmination was the three of us coming in the break at one hundred fifty oh, yeah. knots. And I, could, ooh, that was great. But um, that's one thing we didn't talk about too is here and there, sparsed in after several, of course, dual mm. flights, are solo flights because they expect that you can learn it by yourself in some cases. That's
1: right, and generally, um, and this this is true for any any phase of uh, or type of training you do in the Navy Marine Corps. Hornets, you know, uh, T-34s, it's a progression, crawl, right. walk, run, and generally towards the end of each kind of phase, mini phase, if you will, that's when the solos generally kick in. Right. So I, I think the, you know, and rightfully so when you first touch an airplane, you, you do maybe like six or seven or maybe even eight dualed up flights with an instructor before they give you the keys by yourself. Right. Um, and as you as you progress in training and, and advance of more advanced airplanes, that training kind of requirement shrinks a little bit, so it becomes less and less to solo. But I don't remember doing a three ship. I do remember a two ship, though, where I think I was a lead. There was a, there was an actual instructor in the back, but okay. we kind of would would pogo off each other. Where I led the flight for a little bit, and I had no business leading anything <laughs> at that time. And then my buddy, who certainly had no business leading, we would swap mid-flight. Right. And I, I remember we had like we didn't have like a, an official like score or anything, but we it was there was us and maybe like maybe like eight other guys at the time, and we we had kind of an informal thing going to see who had the best grades, and we all had these outrageous call signs on the radio, of course. I don't even think I can repeat on this show, but um, it it made it a lot of fun. It was was really fun.
0: Hey, let's talk about grades real quick. So an instructor goes out, you go out, do a FAM 7, let's call it, and you come back, and the instructor has to debrief you, so Mm -hmm. he tells you the goods of the others, and then there's some sort of grade system. I mean, I guess a lot like what, academics? We need a way to just capture and and rank people?
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of unique. The whole structure is very unique because what happens is, Again, you, there's never any question of what you're going to be graded on. So you know walking into the event, I'm going to be graded on these eight items. So you know, you know right off the bat what, you, what they're going to look at. And then what they do is they determine that an average student for this, whatever flight they're on, an, an average kind of outcome is, are these grades. And generally there's about between five to ten different um, individual grades you give a student. And what they do is they say, okay, if you if – you, and they tell you, here's the average of this event, and basically we have one or two above average – one or two below for each kind of individual um, little kind of facet they're looking at.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the end, you, you, you kind of tally up how that works out. So what the, what ends up happening is when you get done with training, they take a look at where you rank in relation to, say, the, the last 100, the last 200 students. And that's where you ultimately end up kind of on the pecking order. Uh, how that works out wise so you know you know when, when you come out of an event you know exactly what you did and what you did right and what you did wrong and you know exactly where you stood grade wise um so there's never again no secret or anything but uh it is a fact of life and sometimes it, it can get uh it's a big distraction for some people just that kind of that there's always a um you know you have to perform it, and it's always sure. uh, kind of a nagging voice in your in your ear that you have to do well here because right. You never know when it's going to be your last flight if it comes to that. But generally, people do yeah. pretty well. It motivates people. Um, and again, there has to be some kind of a pecking order. Sure. Because ultimately, in the end, when you go to select what, what aircraft or what, what pipeline you want to go to, it, it, the grades are probably the, the, the primary driving factor
0: right. there. So the grade sheet would have a column for average, and then maybe to the right, above average, to the left, below average, and then mm. probably a column or at least a spot to say unsat. So in other words, if you went out and did something either dangerous or dumb or not even close to the standard, They could terminate the flight, come back, and that's like a down or a refly. And it's just their way to document if someone's really struggling. That's right, yeah. Okay. All right, so you already touched on it. So at the end of basic, then you come to your first fork in the road. Mm -hmm. And at that point, they rank everyone, at least in my timeline. I think there was maybe four or five of us was all that were finishing that particular week. And they ranked us, and they asked us what we wanted. And I think at the time, the, the options were jets maritime, I think they called it, for like P-3s, and then helicopters. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty much still the case?
1: That's what, uh, that's what I remember, yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah. Then you,
0: So you put in your request, and they weigh your desire against the needs of the Navy, which, of course, takes precedence. That's right. And then, I, I don't know about you, I can remember being brought in, and, hey, congratulations, Ensign ILO,
1: you got jets. Well, I remember we had um, the CO asked us if we wanted to do, ind- do it individually, just like that, like you described. I didn't really care either way, or if they wanted to do it collectively as a group. And it was me and, I think it was me and two other Marines. There was maybe eight Navy ensigns and maybe two or three Coast Guardsmen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they, for whatever reason, they decided to do it as a group. So we were sitting in a room, you know, just like this conference <laughs> Raise room. Raise your hand
0: if you want helicopters.
1: Conference room style, just sitting around. <laughs> yeah. And the CEO was like, okay, like I have the, you know, he pulls out a piece of paper. He's like, I have the list right here. Uh, you guys ready to go. So I'm, and he's, he did it alphabetically. So I'm Walsh, so I'm W, so I'm naturally I'm the last person to go. <laughs> And uh, you know, just like you said, you set your dream sheet. I want to, I want to fly jets. I want to fly helicopters. I want to go here. You know, and you just rank it. I think there was like yeah. five or six choices, and they match what you want with what the Marine Corps wants or the Navy. And, j- and the Navy and the Marine Corps needs always trump what you want. Of and um, you know, so you just pray for the best. I really wanted to fly jets. Um, just try to do my best and hope, hope for the best. And when the CO was going down the list, every single person got helicopters. So there was. No math in public. Eight wow. plus three, eight about fifteen, fourteen people, and I'm I'm the last to find out what I was going to get. You know. So you see so the writing
0: I'm, on the wall here.
1: So exactly. So I'm kind of <laughs> sitting there just in and the back of the room just waiting, and you know he's going down the list. Iello helicopters, Baker helicopters. You know, Charlie this, and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And I had made my piece. You know, I was excited to do anything. I just was it was just ready to go in the Marine Corps. I, hey, sure. you want me to fly helicopters? Hey, let's do it. Yeah, uh, go you fly, want to fly cargo cargo yeah. planes. Like, hey, Whatever. let's do it. So. But some people were really uh, – they had their one thing they wanted to fly, and that was it. And people – I don't know what it was, but the Navy guys that, that week or that selection class, there was a lot of guys that wanted jets, and none of them got jets, and they were devastated. I can imagine. And I felt really bad for these guys. But, but I, didn't, I didn't know what I was going to get yet, so I was sitting in the back like, hey, sorry, guys, you know, I, I feel for you, but like, W, here we go. <laughs> and he, I think the CEO said something like, okay, Walsh, lastly, uh, T2 – and I'm like, T2? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. I'm like, they waited the last day to, like, kick me out of here? Like, yeah, what does exactly. that even mean? Subways. I don't you even know. I'm... So T2 was training wing two uh, in Kingsville. Training wing one was Meridian, right. T- T45s uh, to track jets, uh, T2, training wing two in Kingsville. And every single person at that table just, I, I thought they were going to, like, mutiny and rip me to pieces. <laughs> and I was just like, hey, to kind of put my hands up. And, you know, me, and internally I was, you know, beyond excited. But I fell for those guys who didn't get what they wanted and that's that's how we found out. Huh. And and interestingly enough, there was the other squadron, I think it was V T six, which is another squadron in, in um down in Pensacola. I had a look at their list, uh so I knew the guys and they were this was when I selected it was about eight in the morning and I knew that they weren't doing theirs so till like two in the afternoon that day. So my roommate was in V T six and I went over there and I looked at their list so I knew what he got before he did. Oh wow. And I called him up and I you know, I told him what I got and everything and, and jets and he was all excited and, and I was like, Hey, you know, uh, Hey, good luck this afternoon, man. Like, we'll we'll meet up later on. Uh, but yeah, best of luck. And he's like, oh, thanks. Like, uh, do you know something I don't know? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to ruin it for you, but like, whatever. We'll, I'll catch you later. <laughs> and uh, no, and knowing football, well, he got he got T one, which is Meridian. So he was cool. going Jets, which, which was his first choice. So I was just kind of give him a little um, give him a little rub a little there. Scare. And uh, we met up that uh, that night. Went out pretty big down in Pensacola. Sure. But, uh, he interesting enough that same guy. He's up with up at uh, he's a reservist now, but 101 um, – Oh, a, there was an F-18 an... instructor probably. Oh, yeah. very we were, cool. We were, he was my roommate down in flight school. We stayed tight. Uh, we're still tight to this day. Awesome. And it was, yeah, it was a good story. Yeah,
0: that's cool. No, yeah. I like that. It wasn't RCO who did my announcement, but it was somebody uh, probably in the training or, you know, whatever office. And I remember him looking at me and he said, well, how would you feel if you got, you know, P-3s, patrols? And I said, "Yeah, you know, I'd be disappointed, but I'd, I'd be all right, I guess. And yeah. He goes, oh, you don't have to worry about it. You got jets. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm like, well, thanks, but okay. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny the things that stick in your mind, and, and those are pivotal days, of course. So, All right, so you get done with that. You celebrate, in our case, and then you go off to intermediate. So you went down to Kingsville, Texas, yep. right down in the, in the bottom of the state there. I didn't go far. I just went over to Meridian, Mississippi. Now, when you show up, you know how to fly an airplane, but... Now we're going to take those skills and what? Teach you how to fly a jet.
1: Exactly. So very similar kind of crawl, walk, run approach uh, to the training at uh, T-45s. You know, a lot of academics up front, you learn the jet, you learn how it ticks and what makes it go. And then the, the training syllabus is almost identical, actually, right off the bat, you go out there just with an instructor in your back seat, and uh, you have an on-wing, and you just do the same thing. You go up and practice, you know, uh, aerobatics in the jet, how to land, how to take off, you know, do some basic instrument approaches, um, and then you solo, uh, just like you did in, in the T-34, although now you go from flying around at, you know, 90 knots, 100 knots, to cruising at 250 plus. So right. it's it's the, the speed and, the, and the, the rate that things happen is just exponential compared to what you came from. So that's an eye-opener. Um, and it takes a while to get used to just the the pace of uh, the rapid pace in a, in a jet, vice a propeller plane.
0: Right now, and when we went through the T thirty four systems wise was pretty basic. I guess the T-6 guys now, though, have hydraulics and ejection seats and mm-hmm. heads-up displays. So they've already learned all that. But mm-hmm. I remember learning the T-2 in my case, and probably same for you in the T-45. Suddenly, you're learning about all these newer and more complex systems. Yeah. And so that adds an element to it. Plus, you have to, like I said earlier, go back and do some of the water survival and you know, because of ejection seats. So you have to do a little trainer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like you said, everything just happens faster. Yeah. And so you've got to be ahead of the aircraft, as you always should be anyway, but now even more so. And you still learn some of those instrument flying lessons or or rules, like you said. Mm -hmm. And then at least in T2, and I assume it was true in the T45 as well. Now, whereas the T34, you know, it's kind of a basic airplane meant to be flared to land. The T2, in my case, probably same for you in the T45. Almost every landing now was a preparation landing for eventually going to the boat.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there's only so many training opportunities you get, uh, no matter where you go, but especially at that stage in your career. And eventually, probably besides you know some basic air to ground uh, introduction and some basic air to air training introduction, the biggest difference or the biggest addition in the T-45 syllabus is you go to the aircraft carrier. You go day via fire to the carrier by yourself, um, which is incredible. You don't have a lot of time, and it happens faster than we all expected to. So every single time you come out of the break or come out of an instrument approach, you're practicing a Navy graded. To the carrier type approach uh, that we call an FCLP landing, field carrier
0: landing practice.
1: Exactly right, okay. and to the point where they'll have the dimensions of the carrier painted on the runway. Mm-hmm. They'll have the meatball on the left-hand side, just like where you were to determine if you're you're high on the glide slope, you're right. low, uh, and that's exactly what it's out on the boat. You know, obviously the runway is not moving like the boat is, but you're every single time you're you're just building rep after rep after rep. That ultimately culminates if you go on the boat uh, to the carrier, hook down for the first time.
0: Right. Now, that happens in the advanced stage.
1: It's a little bit down the road. Now, you and
0: I were talking before off tape about uh, nowadays you went to uh, what squadron were you in?
1: I was in VT twenty two.
0: So you went to VT twenty two, began in basic, but then at some point, someone just waved their hand in front of you and said, "You're now in advanced." Is that right? Yes. I went from one squadron to another in Mississippi.
1: I think it changed a little bit uh, from when from when you went to when I went because we didn't. There was never a, like an official transition for me. Okay. From I, I believe it was called intermediate up front. Uh, intermediate was first, and then it tr- it became advanced. Mm-hmm. For me, it was transparent. It was all okay. the same thing. And. and the advanced, the biggest difference there was we started doing air to ground. You know, we started doing practice bombing runs out in right. El Centro in California. We did some some basic low level, um, one ship, two ship low level flights out in the desert, uh, armed reconnaissance type, uh, sure. type missions. We did some air to air, basic BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, kind of like dogfight practice, um, and then um, in the boat. So, but for me, and, and I think in the past from you guys, there was a different plane up front, and then you basically went to advanced. And I do remember though, in the Navy, this is only specific to the Navy. There was a mini selection between intermediate and advanced that you so you went everyone went down to Kingsville that tracked jets at that point, but there was a selection in between an intermediate advance where you either went E two C two, which was the the COD the carrier onboard delivery or the the uh, airborne warning platform. Mm-hmm. You tracked that way, or you kept going on the on the strike uh, that ultimately ended up in in the Hornet platform. Okay. So that was kind of a mini selection process, just unique to the Navy. Marines didn't do that. At, at, about the halfway point. So, um, probably a little bit different for those guys, a little bit more stressful. Uh, and that occurred, I, I believe it was just basically after your kind of basic instrument, basic familiarization, basic formation. Sure. They made an assessment to say, Hey, the best guys that could fly form the best and could, could control their airplane the best kind of track towards the F-18 or, or strike. And then for whatever reason, I don't, I, I wasn't privy to the criteria. Sure. This is what we all suspected. Um, and um, and some other great guys went over to E2C2s and came down and lived in Coronado and had a great, great sure. career and, yeah. and loved it.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we had a slightly different track when I went through. They knew that when they finished basic. So okay. that was a whole different platform. But they flew the T2, which we did as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, getting back to the intermediate, you show up, you start flying a jet, and then towards the end of it, and in my case, I switched, like I said, squadrons and started flying the A4 Skyhawk. Now you're getting a little... F- Taste of what you're going to do in the FRS, you begin employing the aircraft. Mm-hmm. So to your point, you do a little bit of air ground. Did you guys drop anything uh, from the T45? I got to drop Mark 76s.
1: We did. We dropped A4. Mark 76s. Okay. Yep. Same. Same. Did it have a gun or anything? It didn't have a gun. Okay. Uh, and I don't think we we practiced even simulated. Did you
0: not? We had a gun in the A4. It worked about a third of the time. I remember <laughs> shooting it a few times, and it was cool nice. when you did. And even in the T2, we did a like an air to air gun pattern, like oh, an, nice. almost like shooting a banner. Yeah, in fact, we never- I think they would actually bring the banner out.
1: Okay. but We you, didn't do that. They no, took that we, away? We, yeah. yeah, we didn't get any of that, It probably wasn't
0: necessary, but it, it was interesting because it made you a better pilot in so much as the pattern was very specific sure. and the banner aircraft was moving, so you had to get to what they called high perch and then roll in and then do the track and then nice. come
1: off. It was fun. I wish we got to do that. Sounds yeah, fun.
0: yeah. So anyway, then, like I said, then when you get to the advanced stage, now you start doing some of the actual employment, and then it all culminates with going to the boat. Mm-hmm. And so you go out daytime only.
1: Daytime only. And
0: you get, what, 10 landings and, what, four
1: or six touch-and-goes? I remember doing about four touch-and-goes and maybe 10 or 12 traps Okay, uh, was what we got. And I can't remember exactly, but I think we broke it up into basically two sessions, for right. lack of a better word. That I think it was, you know, you get two, one or two touch-and-goes to kind of warm up a little bit, kind of get in the... Getting get in the swing of things, and then we did six full trap landings, and then we kind of did that rinse and repeat the next day. It was a two-day evolution.
0: Right, and then at some point they would sideline you and put more gas in you, and then uh, off you go. And I think we've talked about before on this show, you don't have an instructor with you generally because, nope. frankly, they're just not crazy enough. But no. it's also a trial by fire for the students. I mean, it's clear that when you're going out there by yourself, you either make this happen... Or, you know, so be it. And at least for naval aviators, that is a requirement, just Mm -hmm. like form flying or night flying or aero or anything else. That's right. Aerobatics, that is. Now, and you don't always do that at the very, very end. It's not necessarily the capstone because they have to coordinate. We don't have a training carrier anymore like we used to. 25, 30 years ago. So when the Carl Vinson or the Abraham Lincoln is available, then suddenly the squadron gets a call. You put your CQ shop together, and they say, hey, let's take whoever's ready, right? They have to be past a certain phase. That's right, yep. And obviously some guys could be done and just waiting. Mm-hmm. But then you go out, and it isn't always the last thing you do, but it's usually pretty close.
1: Yeah, they, they try to do it when it makes sense and, and when the boat's available, really. Right. And it, it can really um, it can cause a bit of a train wreck in the overall syllabus because everything else gets put on hold while we have an opportunity and rightfully so the the weather has to be good conditions you know the sea state has to be fairly low you know for people's first time doing it Um, and sometimes you get out there and you get off you know I did mine off um, Jacksonville and out off of Cecil and sometimes the weather doesn't cooperate, and, you you know, the CQ shop puts this whole evolution together, and it gets weather canceled. We had one, I remember, one group of guys and gals, it, it got canceled three times in a row. Oh, gosh. And it just added so much overhead to their training, yeah. uh, but, it just, you know, nothing you can do about that. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, that is what makes us naval aviators. And then you come back from that, you finish whatever you got left, and then graduation, right? Yeah. I mean, and the culmination of all this is the wings of gold.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think the last flight I remember doing was a, um, it was like a 2v1 uh, ACM flight, which is kind of neat, uh, where it's basically you and a lead are going to against a, a, another bandit out there by himself, flown by another instructor pilot, and you come back into the overhead, you know, as a three ship, and your buddies are waiting for you to, with the fire hoses and the water balloons and everything, and your family's out there, you know, my wife is there and everything, and uh, it's a really cool, cool event. You come out of the jet, and everyone just t- soaks you down with water. Oh, and, yeah gives you a pat in the back and then um you know hopefully uh you, you generally i think we tried to select or we winged, you know basically the week we finished up so worked right. out pretty good
0: yep yeah that is a great feeling because it's the culmination of a lot of hard work sure. for a long time you yep. bet. i remember that as well and my she wasn't my wife at the time but she is now was there to wing me and they give you i think what we did was like the soft wings they would give you a patch with a for your flight suit, mm-hmm. but then until you actually had the ceremony, at the time it used to be at the chapel there on Meridian, then you couldn't actually wear them on your uniform. Oh yeah, anyway. no, I,
1: I remember our CEO came out and he he kind of soft winged us, and okay. that was really cool. And yep. I remember kind of like I was like, is everyone looking at me because I'm definitely just like kind of awkwardly staring down at these you know shiny me, wings on to my chest. Excuse I standing in
0: front of a mirror for a little while. Yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna be in the corner yeah. looking at myself <laughs> for a second here. Um, well, we're pilots, we do that anyway, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. you know
1: everyone sees you do it, and it's like you know yeah. you're gonna do it tomorrow when you do it, and sure yeah. enough, but
0: but it, I mean it's a great it's a great feeling because it's the culmination like I said of a lot Mm -hmm. of hard work but that's not the end I mean so now you are a winged aviator Mm -hmm. and you are able to go from there then and in my case we had more than just the F-18 we were able to pick back then I want to say F-14, S-3 EA-6B, Prowler and F-18 so there was at least four to choose from these days it's mostly just various flavors of an F-18 but there again was just like jets or not Mm -hmm. was another at least for us Checkpoint. Now, I guess for the Marine Corps, when you went through, was there still prowlers? Was that still an
1: option? There was. So I remember uh, you selected a platform and in the coast as well. So for me, uh, my my list was something like Hornets West Coast out of Miramar, mm-hmm. Hornets East Coast was uh, Beaufort, South Carolina, and then there was same thing Harriers East Coast, Harriers West Coast, Hornets Japan, oh, yeah, Harriers, yeah. Prowlers, which were only East Coast at the time. That's, I don't, even, they don't even they're at sundowning right now, so All that's right. not even an option. And you just ranked your platform with your coast. Nowadays, uh, the F thirty five is in the mix, so there's there's uh, guys and gals coming out of that, going right from a T forty five right into an F thirty five, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, that was an option for us back then, and just like you did out of you know uh, Pensacola, they just match what your service needs with what you selected or requested. And kind of the cool thing I remember, we had what's called a senior marine which was generally a fairly experienced guy who kind of headlined the uh, all the marines in the training command. So there's always a the CO and the XO and the chain of command. Right. But there was a senior marine which is kind of he just kind of was like your big brother to all the marines and he had his pulse on a lot, a lot of things but one of the biggest ones was kind of selection. So he knew you, you know, he would he would take your personality into account. He'd take your grades into account. Uh, he'd take your selection preferences into account and, and kind of weigh those with what um, the Marine Corps need. And he tried try to basically just try to put a personality instead of just a name to a number. Um, and I think just looking back, it worked out pretty darn well. Yeah. Uh, people generally, you know, there's always people that are unhappy with what sure. they get, but which is just a f- unfortunate, um, you know, fact of life in, mm-hmm. in naval aviation. But most of the people, I think, ended up going where they were supposed to go. And, and no matter where you end up, everyone ends up loving what they do and flourishing. So I think this system works pretty good.
0: Okay. All right, so in the case of F eighteen pilots, then you show up to one of the FRSs, Fleet Replacement Squadrons. We have VMFAT one hundred one in San Diego. We have VFA one hundred six in Oceana, Virginia Beach, and VFA one hundred twenty two in Lemoore. And I believe you guys still go to all of them, or do you only go to one hundred one now for Marines?
1: From my understanding, right now is we we have Marine instructors over at uh, V. Let's see where are they are right now. They're at one hundred six, I believe. I don't think there's Marine students there anymore. We haven't had anyone up at 122 up at Lemoore in a bit, although we're about to start to send F-35 to Charlie uh, Marines up to that program.
0: Well, that's going to go to VFA-125. Oh, gonna, is it? Okay? Yeah, yeah one, one of the two. Okay, gotcha. And 122 probably doesn't have Hornets anymore. They're I think strictly they're only, Super Hornets okay, yeah. um,
1: only. So right now, and I'm sure there may be you know, onesie, twosie, Marine students at 106, but I think that's pretty much okay. coming to an end. So 101 is, is basically for Marines at least. Okay. Um,
0: Either way, the syllabus is mostly the same. So yeah. you show up at an FRS, let's say an F eighteen squadron in this mm-hmm. example. And what are you what are you doing there?
1: So you show up. You're a winged aviator. So that's kind of neat. That's a bit of a different. Um, it's a, certainly an upgrade from past uh, flight school experiences. But, you know, like you said earlier, with that increased level of responsibility, there's just, your expectations increase as well. So you're you're expected to conduct yourself more professionally than you have in the past. We know that you don't know how to fly an F-18, but you've been around the Navy, the Marine Corps for a couple years now. So you've been in a couple squadrons now, so you know how to act in a squadron. You know how to conduct yourself in a ready room and, you know, speak to instructors and, and COs and EXOs stuff like that. Um, and basically, we, we just kind of start again. And we go from the crawl, crawl walk, run. A lot of academics up front. Uh, in my case, we will teach you the ins and outs of the F eighteen, uh, the A three D model, the Legacy Hornet, um, and then we'll get you into what we do is uh, EP sims. Just again, just like to your point earlier, I feel like all we do is was, was EPs, but uh, rightfully so because you know, especially nowadays, our, our equipment's aging, and every single guy that's been around for more than a year or two in the Hornet has had something probably not uh, super significant, but um, at least on the mild side – that required some kind of uh, attention from him as a pilot in terms of uh, emergency procedures. So, we do a whole lot of. Uh, I think it's maybe fourteen or fifteen simulators dedicated. So, one one simulator will be specifically for the uh, for the avionics, for the ele- like electrical ups. Like a
0: show and tell, almost
1: it's a little bit of a show and tell. But, but there's um, you know every uh, there's certain emergencies that have a memory item that you have right. to just know what to do in this case. And in, in it's bullet point: do step one, three, two, three, four, five, you know, in order, and then pull out you know a, a book that kind of backs you up and fills in the details. You know hydraulics, uh, engine emergencies, stuff like that, and we put you through the gamut. And then ultimately, before we let you go in the airplane, we have what's called a safer solo sim, where um, we do uh, a lot of uh, ground emergencies. So you just you just you start the it's all in the simulator. Everything's off. You practice turning the jet on. You know you'll have some engine fires, some other various ground emergency stuff that'll just kind of test your decision making. We'll go out to the runway. We'll do a couple of abort scenarios: uh, a low speed abort, a high speed abort. When you're cruising down the runway, and something very significant happens that you, you know, just to test your decision making. Am I going to take this airplane flying? Am I going to abort on the deck? Uh, And just really, and that's a bit of an exposure event, just to show guys and gals what's out there and what could happen to them. And then we'll go up and and do some basic aerobatics. It's kind of a scenario-based thing that ultimately culminates, and hopefully you bringing the the simulated airplane back to the field and recover in one piece, so.
0: But you've showed the instructors that you have done the study, and you know all the, you said EP, so that's emergency procedure. So you know Basically, how to handle just about anything that can happen to this aircraft per guidance that's been given to us to your point in some cases, rote memorization step one boom boom boom
1: yeah yeah, so yeah it's, it's, it's within reason you know the, the scenarios um they're they're realistic and a lot of times we program the sim to do what what people have seen in real life, and we we tell the guys after that, hey that what you saw there that actually happened to jello on this day and and this is what happened, and that really gets people's attention because instead of just some you know arbitrary scenario, this is this stuff really happens right. so you need you need to have an, a general idea of how to aviate, navigate, find your way home and talk to the right people you know uh, execute the the appropriate kind of crew resource management c r m skills that we we harp on daily you know there's all whether you're by yourself there's always someone on a radio you can talk to back home you always have a flight lead you always have you know san diego FAA, AT, air traffic controllers you can help out there's all sorts of resources that are out there to help you get your airplane on back on deck, and we just try to make sure we kind of beat that into their head so they know that's there
0: right. So, And that's a great point because we're not just teaching people how to monkey skill fly an airplane. We're teaching them how to be pilots.
1: We're teaching them how to think.
0: And Um, in this case, in the FRS, we're teaching them how to be F-18 pilots mm -hmm. and how to think, how to have situational awareness. And then, as we'll get to here in a moment, how to employ the airplane, Mm -hmm. right? So now we have some simulators to prep folks for some of the air to surface weapons that we use, because frankly, we can't let everyone expend all the ordnance. It's right. just not practical, right. as well as air-to-air for that matter. Mm-hmm. But we show them air-to-surface, we show them air-to-air, we do aerial refueling. Now, that we do for real. We do, yep. And then some close air support, mm-hmm. and some dog fighting, mm-hmm. and some large force, eh, maybe not large force, but at least some, what, two versus two or more, or four versus yeah, even?
1: we'll get all the way up to 4V... We'll get as many as we can, really, 4v4, 4v8 sometimes, depending. So four good
0: guys and eight bad guys. Yeah, just if
1: we can line it up and make the training work. So
0: So air-to-air employment. And then, again, the culmination is what, back to the boat?
1: Yeah, the boat. Um, So that can happen anywhere really in between the air-to-ground and air-to-air phase. We try to do it at the end, just because that's when the students are the most experienced, right. and, they, and they're kind of they've seen, you know, they have basically maybe eighty hours in the jet, which is not a lot, no. but it's better than sending a guy with fifty hours to the to the boat. Um, so every every hour counts at that stage in the training. Uh, and then we yeah we do the same thing we spin them up the CQ shop, uh, we get we get them back out to do the FCLPs like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the same setup at Miramar with a with a carry box dimensions are painted on the runway and the the. The eye falls lens is on the side, and we practice, you know, doing this like we're going to do it out in the out in the carrier.
0: Except, unlike in the T forty five, when you only went in the daytime, what happens in the F eighteen now?
1: Well, <laughs> in, I, in the in the F eighteen, you you know, you go out in the daytime, and it's great, and you're fi- you're like, I remember doing this. This is awesome. Like, you know, it's just an impressive impressive thing to be a part of. And then you're like, Oh, this is great. I'm just going to get something to eat. And they're like, eh, I don't think so, because we're going to go back out tonight and do it at night. <sighs> And that's, to be honest, that can be downright terrifying. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, as a Marine, I, I was not a boat Marine, so I, I don't have a whole lot of experience in the boat. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to you guys for okay. doing that day in and day out, or night in and night, I should say, because yeah. that is something when you you line up behind a boat at night and you, you know what an aircraft carrier looks like, but you see like a handful of lights just bobbing in the water and you don't see an aircraft carrier, but you know that's it. All right. It's, uh, that's something.
0: You know, it always cracked me up. I think in the FRS, you're supposed to get, what, 10-day and 6-night to qualify. And for the Navy guys, to your point, you know, we'd go out and get I, – I should check my logbook, but I think I have close to 300 night landings. And uh, it was always fun to meet a major or a lieutenant colonel who had, like, 12 <laughs> because he got 6 once and then so, maybe went back later after a staff tour and got 6 again. But then it. Yeah, I went to a shore – squadron.
1: It it was unique, though, because I remember, um, whereas in in T-45s, they really do hold your hand uh, in that whole evolution, and probably rightfully so, and to the point where when you come to the ship in a T-45, you're just following your flight lead, and he will set you up in pretty good parameters, you know, distance from the boat and speed and altitude that you can make, at least for that first one, that you can make a pretty good pass at the boat, and Mm -hmm. then the rest is up to you. (laughs) F-18s, I think someone slid like an index card across the table with a lat-long latitude longitude the location of the boat and they said we'll see i'll see you on button 13 (laughs) and i'm by and i'm at north island by myself and there's this like lonely looking f18 out in the out in the apron and i'm like where is everybody else and they're like that's it we'll see it see you on button 13 and i'm like oh my god (laughs) like okay and um, yeah, it, it's it's sink or swim. I remember I get out overhead of the ship, and I was the day before, or the two days before, I was out there, and there was just you know planes everywhere. It was, it was like a World War One movie. You know, there was everywhere. There's planes. The because all was, the
0: FRSs show up. right? Everyone,
1: the guys from Lemoore came down. Yeah. I think we had a couple guys from the East Coast came over. Um, and yeah, so it was great. So at least you know you didn't know. I didn't know what was going on, but there was there was company there, and that that was familiar. I knew if every every F eighteen nose was kind of pointed in one direction, if I just kind of did that, I'd at least blend <laughs> in. Um, but the, this when I. Went back out there this time, there was nobody, not a single plane. And it was about 8 in the morning. And, I, at, you know, the in, which is the, the, the navigation device you use to try to uh, work your way around it and, right. and get from point A to point B, the in on the ship was, wasn't working that well. It was, it was intermittent, so that wasn't really helping. And I knew kind of the general direction, where the boat was, and they gave me this inaccurate, you know, coordinate. But <laughs> somehow, by the grace of God, I found the boat, and I get over the head, and I was, I was by myself. And I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is not good." And I could see um, <laughs> it was the the that the initial. I think the morning ops haven't began yet, and so I could see all the uh, the Navy enlisted guys and gals on the flight deck getting ready to start trapping jets. And I was so low, I could I could just see them just their heads just following me. I'm just I'm just making laps at, at above them, you know, you know, a couple thousand feet. But I can see them just kind of tapping their feet and kind of leaning up against gear and equipment. They're all waiting for me. You know, to land this jet, and I could just—I could feel him like, all right, Junior, come on, let's go. Everyone's watching. The whole carriage is sitting there, and the air boss gets on, and, and he had—he was this—he um, had this real uh, Southern drawl from you know <laughs> Georgian drawl, which was great. And he was like, hey, you know, hey, son, he goes, uh, well, why don't you come on in and uh, hook down first pass? Which is generally you take a couple laps and right. you do a touch and go, and you just kind of get the butterflies out, and and then you drop the hook and start start keeping score. The boss wanted me to come down and just and play for real right off the bat, and I was like, oh, my God, like, everyone is watching this. is like day two. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. And um, I came around, you know, hooked down first pass, and I, I, I can't remember what wire I caught. But I trapped, got some gas, and, and my knees were shaking, and, and uh, they threw some gas in the jet, and I, they blasted me off, and I went out there. And I think I was like, I don't remember too many other people out there, so it was kind of neat. I, would, I had a whole carrier to myself. And I'm just, you know, doing laps in the pattern, taking traps and it was uh it was surreal. It was great. I'll never forget that.
0: That is cool. Well you can't pay for that. That's a no, lot of, it's great. That's a lot of cost for that thing running around <laughs> just for you, but I'm sure someone else showed up before long or they were taking a break. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right. So you finish the C Q, you might finish the rest of your syllabus. And then what happens at the end of the frs i mean you're not getting winged mm-hmm. but you're at least probably what going to find out what squadron you're going to
1: yeah so somewhere in there generally for me what i do now with the um the students coming through or the, the racks replacement air crews that we call them mm-hmm. when they get about you know a couple weeks out from uh, completion i start to talk with the the whatever higher headquarters they're going so whether they're staying here at uh, miramar or they're going out to the east coast and Beaufort or to japan I'll start to talk with those guys and, and uh, they'll have an idea of they kinda of do a powwow of their own and divvy up um based on manning requirements where people are gonna go. So generally as a training officer, I have a heads up of where guys are gonna go and um I try not to even really uh show my cards there and let them just sure. so they don't get distracted and just get ahead of themselves. But when you complete, uh we we generally do what's called a patching, which is kinda of neat. And we have a we have a um up at um one oh one we have a, a heritage room uh in the squadron that has there's a lot of lineage, uh, a lot of family members in the past that have come through 101, and we have their pictures up on the wall. And it's you know it's just a really cool place to to christen newly minted uh, pilots. So basically, what we do is if it's the rack is staying out here at Miramar, I'll call up the squadron they're going to if they're home, and, and I'll invite them over to the heritage room, and the whole squadron comes over. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like great whites, just waiting for this little oh, guppy yeah. to get out of the kick them out of the boat, <laughs> and they'll come over and uh, and they'll welcome them into their squadron. Sure. And uh, you know we'll have their class advisor. We'll say a couple funny stories or just you know some yeah. some things that came up along the way. It's kind of like a roast, sure, all in good fun. And um, generally the uh, their squadron that's receiving them will will uh, will welcome them there. So it's a really good uh, kind of culmination of everything.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you made the comment if they're home, so a lot of times squadrons are deployed.
1: Yeah, and that's and so, what happened to me when I was when I was a student uh, at 101. So there was I think there was only one squadron at the time at Miramar. I, w- I was slated to stay there, and there was only one squadron home. So I was like, well, that pretty much narrows it down. I guess I guess and kind of know where I'm going. And I, you know, t- in typical Cat One rack, I was 100 percent wrong, and I had no idea <laughs> no idea what was going on. Um, and I remember my CO pulled me into his office. You know, probably a day or two after we finished, and you know, I had I had like a mag patch on a um, uh, air group because I didn't have a, they didn't know where to send me. Right. And this patch was terrible looking. And yeah, it's not terrible. It's, it's an alright patch, but it's not a gun squadron. I wanted a I wanted a marine sure. gun squadron on my chest. And, and I didn't get that. And I was like kind of disappointed. And he said, uh, hey, you know, how do you feel about uh, deploying? And I'm like, I don't necessarily feel great about it. It's, you know, it's what we're here to do, right? And he's like, No, I mean like, how do you feel about deploying in like two weeks? <laughs> and I was like, two weeks? I'm like, wow, that's pretty close. I'm like, I don't I don't, what the hell? He said, what are you talking about, sir? What's going on? And he said, you know, there's a squadron that we're thinking about sending you, you and another guy to, uh, but they're currently over in CENTCOM out in, in the Middle East. What do you think about that? And I was like, oh, absolutely. I'm like, let's do this. Nice. So two weeks turned into, uh, I think that was more about, you know, four to six or so uh, real time, which is okay because we just had our first baby um, wow. as all this is going on in the background. So my wife, I'm trying to relay this to her, and she's she's less than thrilled just, you know, with the first kid, and we have no idea what we're doing with. You know being parents and stuff and, and the c o wants to send me overseas but um it's something that I relay to the to the racks to this day you know to take this deadly serious because quite honestly your your life depends on it sure and the the second you're finished here at one one with us uh you're expected to operate you know at a, at a, an appropriate level of a of an inexperienced f eighteen pilot but you're expected to Operate your airplane in a lethal way based on what you've learned in the last yeah. year, year and a half, and and so I can see that it it's sometimes goes over guys and gals' heads a little bit, and I can tell that they don't really believe me sometimes, and then I tell them that story. I'm like, hey, I was overseas within a month of completing here, and you know, I was certainly not tasked with doing really anything remotely important when I got to the my fleet squadron when I got I met the Black Knights overseas, but. They expected me to be able to start an airplane and find my lead and stay in a relatively good position and, and not be a nuisance and right. not require you know, extra hand-holding, and that's what I did. Yep, And it served me well through my, my time there.
0: For sure, because then you get there, you're theoretically a combat wingman, but you're still pretty green, and then they're going to hone you into a lethal warfighter at that point. and in their specific way to their squadron. That's right. All right, so let's, let's take a step back. How many hours do you get in each phase of training? So, for example, I ended up with, I want to say, about 100 in the T-34, about 90 in the T-2, and about 110 in the A-4. And I then I want to say I, right. I ended up with about 100 in the uh, FRS as well. So is that about the same?
1: Yeah, I think I was, I was actually looking at my log today. the other day. I think I, ha- I got about 100 hours or so in the T-34. Okay.
2: Um,
1: T-45, I actually, when I, before I got selected to fly Hornets, um, they were really short on instructors, and they asked me to stick around for an extra year to be uh, what's called a surgrad. Oh yeah. So I didn't even know what that was at the time, and it was me and two of my really good buddies. And again, we're in the CEO's office, standing tall, and he looks at you know one guy's like, "You're going to Hornets and Beaufort, first choice." Elated, you're going to Prowler's, his first choice. Elated, and you're staying here, and I was like. <laughs> You I'm doing it again, <laughs> uh, and I didn't even know because it wasn't even an option. And he explained yeah. what it was, so I I stuck around for an extra year to be an, cool. um, to be an instructor. So for me, I think I I think I came out of there. By the time I got to Miramar, I was I was sitting at um, maybe close to 400 hours. Sure, but T-45. you were probably flying
0: twice a day.
1: I was flying, you know, but it was about 100 to you know, call about 110 as a student, mm-hmm. and then I was I was flying two three times a day, five wow. days a week for yeah. a year straight. Uh, just, Will a
0: student fly twice a day?
1: Sometimes, 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 yeah, Depends. and there's certain rules to limit uh, how okay. many you know training events guys and gals can do. But sometimes they can do. We'll do like what's called an out and in, where we'll take off, we'll do our um, our training flight, land at a different airport, get some gas, maybe a bite to eat, and then launch off, do another, do the same, or do a different mission and land back at launch gotcha. So
0: okay. And then we talked a little bit about simulators before, but is it still pretty much the progression that you get some ground school, whether it's instructed or on your own, right? You could be sitting at some computer-based training. Yep. And then generally you hop in a simulator, and then you generally fly after that. So mm-hmm. kind of book, simulator, airplane?
1: Yeah, it is. And that's you know that's day one at T-34 T- is kind of mm-hmm. rinse and repeat. And, and you'll do that all the way up until you okay. get to the – and even in the fleet, uh, once you get become a fleet aviator – You'll do that, not so much the academic portion, but generally we'll run you through a sim or two prior to an actual flight right. uh, just to build up some reps. So And it, it leads to better training when we get in the airplane.
0: Yeah. It's like batting practice before the exactly. game.
1: Yep. Sure. Exactly.
0: Okay. And then what about other jobs while you're in flight school? I mean, are they making you stand duty, or do you have a division you're in charge of, the guys in corrosion shop or anything like that? I think the only
1: job, if you want to call it that, that you get as a student is um, the duty officer. Okay. So I remember in – t thirty four is you didn't really have anything, and rightfully so. So 100% of your time is devoted to learning how to fly at a basic level. T-45s, you sometimes get slated to kind of help run the flight schedule for a couple-hour chunks of a right. of the day. So, I mean, that's maybe 5% of your time, so still 95%, maybe even higher than that, you're devoted to being a, a flight student. Mm-hmm. Same thing up at uh, 101 or the Hornet FRS. We have our students um, help out on the duty desk and, and help the, uh, the IP who's running the flight schedule for that day kind of assist him um, and do his duties there. But, again, that's we try to limit that to no more than once a month. So that's, again, a relatively small tax, which is totally different from when you get to the fleet. <laughs> and that catches people by surprise, yeah. I think.
0: yeah. Um, yeah, I remember when I was in T-34s, I think it was that you had, like, an instructor who was the ODO, maybe, mm-hmm. the operations duty officer, mm-hmm. kind of had the big bubble on things, and then his little right-hand man was the student whose yeah. turn it was to be on the duty desk that day, and I think he was, like, the SDO or something, the squadron duty officer. But I do remember, at least for us, we, I don't know if it was maybe just on holidays or whatever, but I somehow drew SDO Thanksgiving night in like 1993. (laughs) And my then girlfriend, now wife, God bless her. She came in and hung out with me. And uh, of course now she wouldn't do that, but you know, Uh, but you know, it's just one of those things where like, Oh, that sucks. You got to be in there. Well, come in and hang out. And I forget if we just, you know, talked or whatever, but um, you know, so yeah, you do have some extra duties you might have to do just to help the squadron run day to day. But for the most part, that is your job. That is your requirement. Mm -hmm. You're not taking care of other people's you know, evaluations or right. what job some enlisted man is doing or woman, you are, you are that is your job is to be a flight student.
1: And, and that's something when, I, when guys and gals check in with me, I, I make very clear. Like, mm-hmm. hey, your primary role in life for the next year to two years is right. to learn how to fly and be lethal in the F-18. Everything else is ancillary. If you are getting tasked out with stuff that you might not know if that's appropriate or not, come to me and I will, I'll tell you because yep. your role in life is to learn how to fly and become yep. a Hornet pilot.
0: Now, when I was commissioned in August of 1992, there was a big backlog of students, and I'm glad that they kept me instead of just calling a whole bunch of us out of the herd. So I didn't actually start until almost exactly a year later, August of 93. But then I was winged in July of 95, and I finished the FRS, I want to say, in sp- uh, no fall of 96. So from- now you, you're not going to be able to answer this because you did your uh, surgrad thing, but two years to winging and then about another year for the FRS. Is that still fairly standard?
1: I think so. Yeah, I remember for me it was about um, probably about three and a half because I did I had that extra year in there. Of Surgrad? Of Surgrad, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you took that out of the equation, it was probably about two and a half years. Um, and we I remember when we get to Florida uh, in Pensacola, we had a huge backlog as well. Okay. And I remember one time that they initially they, they said, for the Marines at least, they're like, we're going to start you in flight school based on your lineal number from the basic school. So how well you did at the basic school, that just they were just trying to think of a fair way to rack and stack everybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I think I was in, like, the top third, you know, bottom part of the top third, something like that. So I, I wasn't at the very top, but I was fairly close. You know, I, I'll buy another month or so down, hanging out in the beach in Pensacola. <laughs> it was just, just about the right amount of time before training started. I went to Boston on vacation, and unbeknownst to me, they changed the entire way that they racked and stacked people and they just did it alphabetically so overnight i went from you know the 80th percentile to like the zeroth because i'm a w <laughs> i went i was at the i was at the end yeah. and that added a, a lot of time that i didn't have anything to do which which um we call it white space where you just kind of do not doing anything um it was it was fun for a while you know are in pensacola and there's i found plenty of things to do so i wasn't worried about that but right. you know you're there to learn how to be a combat pilot um and it um I didn't realize kind of the career implications because later on down the road, you want to try to get through things as quick as you can and spend the majority of your time in the fleet if you can because a lot of guys are showing up, you know, three or four years, then hitting the fleet, and it's kind of it kind of creates some weird timing right. issues. With because the
0: at least on the initial ranks, a lot of it is based off of time, at least right. it was in the Navy. So you go from ensign to Lieutenant JG and then Lieutenant JG to Lieutenant almost automatically based on time, not yep. performance. Right. And then from Lieutenant Commander, in your case, Major and on, it, it is that way. Now, one question I always get from people, and I already know your answer because you had zero flight experience, but in your capacity as an instructor, or anecdotally, when you were a student and you saw other friends of yours, how big a deal is previous flight experience when you are either in basic or even in the FRS?
1: So I think if you kind of think, you know, continuing with the sports analogies, it's like when someone or when you look at like a, a group of guys, you know, say 12 year old kids playing baseball, and it's just some kids get it initially. And they're better initially than maybe other guys in the team, but eventually everyone evens out at the end. at the end of the season everyone's at about the same uh, the same level of, uh, of play right so the, the prior experience initially you'd think it'd be a great benefit because you know if you already know how to talk on the radio and navigate in the FAA system, uh, I mean that's half the battle just finding your way around so for sure so that's a huge advantage initially I didn't know how to do any of that um, but on the other side of that. Sometimes, and I've seen this more so than not, guys and gals who have that prior experience, that prior general aviation experience, somehow have difficulties learning the Navy-Marine Corps way because they bring that prior experience in kind of that, that their habit patterns that they've developed that might not necessarily be the, the way or the habit patterns that the Navy and the Marine Corps want you to have. So I didn't know any better um, when I showed up, and I was just like, "Hey, I'll, you talk, and I'll listen, and I'll learn, and do it the way you want me to do it." And it worked out pretty good. And there was some people had a lot of issues with that, and they were like, "Well, I have." One guy had like almost a thousand hours. Um, wow. he You know, he had a commercial rating, and, and he was well on his way to do whatever he wanted. And then he came. I think he was in the Navy, and he struggled a lot. And mm-hmm. you, you know, if you had just looked at that on paper, you'd think he'd be an immediate rock star, but he wasn't because he had been doing it his way for so long that by the time he get to Pensacola, it's one way to do things. And that's the way they teach it down there. And they don't really care where you did other than that. Right. So it's not a big deal. If you don't have experience, um, it's not a big deal. That is not a, not a disqualifier.
0: Yeah. I, I love that answer. And what I usually tell people is if you can get some time, go do it. Because if nothing else, if you could at least get the butterflies out of your stomach. In other words, when I, I don't know what you touched on it, but you didn't really say if it afflicted you or not. I did get sick on my FAM1 and on fam 2 i think i got nauseous but i held it down and you know by fam 5 or 6 you're fine but you know if you can get just the sense of hey my stomach is used to this so that's good get that out of the way and at least maybe not get to the point where you're developing habits like you said but at least understand oh when i go to an airport i have to talk to somebody Duh. yeah <laughs> i mean some basic stuff like that but on the other hand if a person is willing to put in the hard work and is adaptable to things like you did you can learn it
1: you learn it. I mean, you go to an airport, and it doesn't matter if you're flying, you know, a Cessna, you know, 172, or you're flying a Boeing 777. You know, you you, you find your way to the airplane, you, you start it up, and each plane has, has their own sequence, yep. and you find your way to the runway, and you have to talk to the same people. doesn't matter what plane you're in. You have to take off and talk to the right people and fly the right way, you know, in accordance with what you're flying. So all that stuff is directly applicable, and yeah, I think that's great advice if you can get some you know, I had that IFS experience, which was like maybe five hours, maybe mm-hmm. in, a, in a Cessna. And I had maybe one ride other than that. I can't, I don't even think I had that. You know, I mean, I had nothing. I'm not even kidding. I had nothing going into this. <laughs> your feet this.
0: hadn't <laughs> left the ground.
1: I had nothing. in I never, I don't remember ever, you know, actively being sick in a plane, but I remember in one of those initial, like the second flight in, in, in that five-hour deal in a Cessna, your body just is is not used to that environment. Your body is not used to being in a three-dimensional environment with you know, you're going forward, then you're going back, and then you get hit by a gust of wind, and right. you're kind of tipping left and right, and your ex- your body's experiencing these weird uh, forces on it that it's not used to, and that can be an eye opener. I think I went home after that first or second flight, and I felt like I had just run a marathon. And I laid down on my bed, and I just I remember just staring at the ceiling fan going around because I was so smoked <laughs> after an hour flight. Which I think I, I think I flew for like 15 minutes of the one. I didn't even do anything. I just sat there and looked out the window. And I was in my bed in the air conditioning just like, oh, my God, I am just smoked right now. Um, but, and now, you know, today,
0: like, you could have theoretically gone out and fought BFM for 35 minutes, come back, and it's no big deal. Grab a cup of joe and go do it again. Go do it again. And, and that's, <laughs> But
1: that's the beauty of your body adapts, yeah. and oh, you yeah. get used to it. And mm-hmm. um, and I would say like, I could count on less than one hand how many people couldn't adapt, um, so meaning almost Most everyone get used yeah. to it at some point, some yeah. people sooner than others, so don't yeah. worry about that. I was a kid who was... Growing up, I never wanted to go on the roller coasters. I never wanted to do really? those you know, crazy carnival rides. I could not sit in the back of my uh, parents' Dodge Caravan that we had years ago because i get car sick. I had to sit in the front. <laughs> I mean, I did not. I, if you looked at me you know, when I was growing up, I, I did not have, other than maybe a little bit of athleticism, I did not have you know, the right stuff of what it, you would think a fighter pilot, you know, cast iron stomach and nerves of steel. I was like, I'm not going on that. Well, that's no
0: because those aren't born. They are created, but that you know,
1: and I I talked about a little bit earlier. That's that's the where the will piece comes into it. You know, Mm -hmm. there was absolutely nothing that was going to stand in me becoming a fighter pilot, and I I remember just having like a pep talk to myself, like I will if I have to throw up for as many times as possible in a plane to make this happen. I do not care. I am going to do this. That's right. I am going to be a fighter pilot. And I did it.
0: Maybe they'll stop me, but I'm not stopping
1: me. So, someone, someone yeah, might, right? you know, someone might pull my medical ticket and say, this, "Hey, Mike, this is this isn't your thing." But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was there was nothing that I was going to let get in my way um, to to make this happen.
0: All right, dude. Well, we have talked about flight school from commissioning to post winging, post FRS, getting to the fleet. We talked about the stages. We talked about the syllabus in those stages, the aircraft you fly, some of the preparation, what it's like, what you got to do. What else? I mean, clearly there's more, but what else is there for this subject for today? We've been at it for a little while.
1: Yeah. You know, I think we covered the nuts and bolts of what flight school is. I just, you know, I'll say to people who are interested in it, um, you know, I, I got, looking back on it, I got, I get horrible advice to, to prepare for something like this. And it wasn't because people were trying to steer me wrong. They just didn't really know what, what was it actually advice? took. You know, you, you know, you need to study this, you need to get into this field, you need to be flying this. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I didn't do any of that. And <laughs> you know, I did pretty good in my flying career up, to, sure. up until this point. So the point being is, you know, if this is something that you're interested in, um, you know, and, and nowadays, I won't say that I grew up and you know, internet wasn't a thing when I grew up, because obviously it was, but there's so many resources with, you know, with your podcast, with, uh, you know, you go on YouTube, just go on the internet just to see and hear people's experiences and just never be afraid to ask someone, hey, what is it like when you did this? Because you'll get that human side of it. And you'll get that answer like, hey, I I was a criminal justice non-technical major that had no flight experience, and now I'm the training officer of the biggest F-18 Hornet squadron in the Marine Corps. So you never know where it's going to take you, and as long as you have the desire to be successful and you put the time in and you just don't let anything, because you're going to have bumps in the way, you're going to have bad events and bad days, uh, and stuff's going to happen that's going to make you question, is this the right career choice? Everyone has it at some point. Um, but you just got to buckle down and, and, and got it out and get through it because it's, it is the best job in the world.
0: And you have to tell yourself the right story, which is you can do it because people do it. You and I did it. Yeah. And we're not that special, I would argue, but you know, like you said, there is a certain level of determination and internal fortitude that's required. And if you have that great, of course, you also need a few physical attributes like color vision and good vision and a few other things, but, um, I, I would be willing to say that anyone who can apply themselves to something and finish it could probably apply themselves to this and do it.
1: You're going to be. And, and really, it's the reason why that's so important is not just to get through flight school or, you know, to get wings. Because if you can survive the the program and you can if you can thrive in that uh, that environment and ultimately, you know, earn your wings and get out to a fleet squadron, you are going to be in some situations that are that are downright hairy and you're going to have to rely on the relationships that you've built just at a personal level with your buddies in the squadron, with their their wives back home to support each other, uh, and you're going to be, you're going to be tried and, and tested in some serious, intense situations, and that's really where that stuff comes into play. It's not so much to, to look at on a grade sheet right. or to get through a, a certain phase in training. It's for when it matters when there's Marines on the ground that are having a rough day and taking casualties, and they need your help and they need your weapons to go exactly where they're asking them to go, they know they just pick up the magic radio and they call the Black Knights and, and help is on the way. That, that's really what it's all about.
0: Excellent. You bet. Or any Marine squadron, for that matter, which is a great segue. I've got a guy lined up. We're going to talk about the Marine Air Ground Task Force. Great. Probably in the same month that this one comes out, September of 2018. So maybe right before the Miramar Air Show. So oh, for perfect. those who are nearby, can yeah. go listen to it and then go check it out. Yeah, so come on we'll, out. We'll talk about marine aviation a little bit uh, on a future episode. So we'll wrap this up. BS, you know the drill here. Last couple questions. Um, you're man, you're living large. Coronado, great family, got a good gig. You're still flying F 18s What's the future hold, though?
1: Yeah, so we're um, we're kind of coming down on the wire for my time in the Marine Corps. Uh, I think I'm probably going to uh, step out around December, and I just got a get offered a slot to go fly F uh, fifteen c's for the Mass National Guard. So being you know being a Boston guy and Caitlin's a Boston gal, and our, all our family and stuff are back up there. I, I couldn't think of a better way to continue flying, but f- in my state, flying a pretty, pretty incredible airplane. Oh, yeah. uh, so we're going to do that uh, in the short run, and then um, ultimately, uh, I'd like to kind of get into a mix with the with the National Guard and, and you know hook up with a major airline, uh, and kind of work the airline road. For sure, yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, we may have to invite you back, and you can talk to us about the difference between the Hornet and the Eagle. We haven't yeah, done that sure. yet. It's on my list, and there's plenty of other guys, of course, that could also talk to it, but we like you now. You spent a lot of time with us today. Thanks very much. All right, and the last thing is I haven't even barely used your call sign, but we always ask our guests, how did someone or did you maybe come up with BS?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I didn't have a call sign. I didn't really have anything coming to my fleet squadron, and so people just call me random names. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you know that so that you know that didn't last that long, they but we were waiting um, for you
0: to do something stupid I probably. guess so
1: yeah, I, you know, right. I was trying to keep my nose clean and right. trying to you know put my bombs where they should go and, and put my airplane where it needed to be so i didn't I didn't pick up anything crazy, but I had um my whole family 's uh, firemen back in Boston, my dad, my older brother, my uncle, and um when the Boston Marathon bombing uh went down we we just actually come back from a flight and it was. They were playing it in the radio room, and and you know you see all you know what happened that day. Yeah. And I remember I knew my dad was was on duty that day, and I knew he was heavily involved in that. And I was like, oh man, I, you know you just I hope everyone's okay. And you know it you know it was a pretty pretty rough day across the board. But sure. anyway, so in the in the uh, fallout of that, the whole like Boston Strong you know l- slogans and stuff started coming on t shirts, bracelets, and all that which is pretty neat. So my CO, you know, he knows I'm a Boston guy and I, you know, I I made it a point every day to inform my squad mates of the superiority of Boston <laughs> athletics and just everything gen- in in Boston in general. Um which they were pretty much annoyed at that point uh, with that. But um, so he's like we're just going to call you Boston strong and I was like, "Oh man, these guys are never going they're going to tear me apart for that." And I could see my <laughs> my opso at the time uh, was in the back as this was going down. Uh, who was Putty shoop who's now an F thirty five CO? Cool. And I, he just threw the eye roll of the century when that went down. I'll never forget his facial expression. I was like, Oh, this isn't gonna this isn't gonna last. So the next day, there was a guy who was supposed to go out on a flight. That got, I think he got med down or something like that. He couldn't make it. So Putty called me up and he said, Hey, uh, we have two Red Air and we have an instructor. Can you do you know a section lead event, which is you know a workup event to be a two ship uh, flight lead. And I I wasn't even remotely prepared for it and I you know in true you know marine fighter pilot I totally made it up and I was like (laughs) oh yeah let's do it I'm of course I'm ready for this absolutely not 100% not ready for it wasn't even remotely close and it was with it was with Putty was the evaluator so we go in the briefing room and it was I think it was 2v2 BFM so fairly for that stage for my stage in the game a very complex brief in and of itself never mind the actual flight so you know I go I go to the brief and i'm just i'm like i am not even this is gonna be terrible and i just kind of breeze my way through this brief and i can just putty is less than impressed he's he was a former motts which is the marine uh weapons school right former motts instructor pilot very capable guys obviously a commanding officer right now and he just kind of he's not even taking notes he just looks at me and he's like are you done with that bs <laughs> for lack of he didn't use he didn't use the term bs okay. he used it full term Thank and, you. and i said uh Yep, I'm done. Let's go fly. And he was like, "Thank God!" And you, get, you just get up and got get out. So that just kind of <laughs> stuck from there. Uh, guys just kind of kind of started calling it that because I BS my way through that brief, and somehow he let me go flying.
0: <laughs> and the Boston Strong. So the, you could almost call it that one too. Huh?
1: Yeah, it started there, and then and then that didn't last. That lasted about All a minute, right. and then I you know I totally sure. did that, and the rest is history. All yeah.
0: right. Well, that. I don't think we've had anyone yet who's earned one out of a brief. So that, okay, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, there's probably some other stuff uh, that may or may not have played into that, but we'll we'll leave it. All right,
0: well, good, yeah, Yeah, we'll keep this PG. Plus, you know, we we don't want to know that you um, self, what is it called, self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, if they once they start calling you that, then you have to earn it kind of thing, so hopefully not.
1: there's some interesting ones out there.
0: Excellent. All right, Mike, well, that was an awesome discussion. I hope young people who hope to do what we had the opportunity to do will enjoy this and learn something from it. And, of course, it could change by the time they get there, but it gives them a rough idea of what to expect and what our experiences were, and that's the best we can do on this show. So I want to thank you for your how many years of service now?
1: I'm um, coming up on 13 now. 13, okay.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for your service, and probably you can hopefully get to 20 with the uh, reserves there. And uh, thanks for your time today. And unless you got any other parting shots, I think we can wrap this up.
1: No, that's it, y'all. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. All right, man. Let's
1: get out of here. All right, cool. All right. Well, I hope you hung
0: with us and stayed awake through all that. I'm sure you did because that's exciting stuff. And that interview actually went for about an hour and a half. And I had to cut a lot of it out because I just didn't think it would all fit in one episode. So we're going to take some of the excerpts and put them in the Patreon Fighter Pilot Podcast page for different leveled supporters so if you're into that look for that to come out right after this episode and if you're interested in that head over to patreon.com and look for fighter pilot podcast all right so mike walsh bs thanks dude appreciate your time coming on the show And I know everybody enjoyed our time together. And in fact, everybody, he only lives a couple streets over from me in Coronado, as fate would have it. So I told him that I'm going to talk him into a Facebook live session where we can answer some questions because we are not going to have time to do it on this episode. Uh, but that being said, I do need to explain a couple more terms very quickly that we went over in our discussion. One is that at some point he said rack, and I think he explained that that was a replacement aircrew. But then later he said a cat one rack, and so what he means by that is that somebody who's going through the training for the very first time, they are a cat one. If someone has been through training in something else, let's say an F14, and then they are transitioning to an F18, well then they might come through as a cat two because they're not brand new, but they are new to the hornet. And then your cat 3 and cat 4 are kind of people who maybe flew the F18 before but are coming back after a little time off. So those are just some of the ways the FRS has categorized their students. And then Surgrad, if you don't recall that from Mongo's discussion on the MIG kill from Desert Storm, that is where they take a recently graduated student and keep him as a selectively retained graduate to instruct at the training command and that's what BS did just like Mongo. Now, Mots as in Mots 1 is the Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1 based in Marine Corps Air Station Yuma, Arizona. And it does a little bit like what Top Gun does, but a much bigger team picture with other players than just the strike fighters. And I'm hoping to have an episode on that someday. So we'll just leave it at that for now. The other thing we want to talk about is the Air Force side of things. Sometimes students go to Air Force flight school and sometimes Air Force flight students come through the Navy's flight school, and as I said in the interview, I have an Air Force volunteer who I'm hoping to corral into talking about this very same subject. In fact, I'll probably make him listen to this episode first, and we're going to do it from the Air Force point of view, so stay tuned for that. And then the last thing is I finally dug out my old logbooks and found out that I made about 285 passes at a carrier at night. Now, the good news is, 263 times I landed successfully. Uh, But there were four touch-and-goes, and and I think that was during probably FRS training, because normally touch-and-goes at night are just awful. And yes, there were 18 bolters at night, so I don't know. I think that boarding rate's only a little less than 94%, which isn't great, but hey, I was blue-collar. I tell you that all the time. And I'm still alive, so all the airplanes are still workable. I'll count that as a success. All right, well, this is a much longer than normal episode, so we're going to wrap it up with that. Before we do, let me simply tell you one more time that the last weekend of September is the big Southern California air show at Marine Corps Air Station, Miramar, and I will be there on Saturday the 29th. Now, admission, parking are free. There are different booths and chalets and grandstands you can pay for, and, of course, other things you may want to buy. But entry... To enjoy the show is free. It is headlined by the Blue Angels. It's gonna be a great time. And as we get closer towards the event, I will put out more detail because I think it's looking like I'll be able to spend most of the day in a chalet and I wanna let you know which one that is in case you wanna come in and join me all day. And then at some point during the day, I'll sneak out of there and go park probably under the wing of the C5 Galaxy, which will be there, I'm told. It's the biggest airplane so you can't miss it. I'll probably just be under the right wing from a certain time to another certain time with my polo on and you can come find me and we'll shake hands and talk and maybe I'll bring some stickers or something. But anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But for this episode, we're all out of time. We'll see you next time right here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Oh, and real quick on your way out the door, let me remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components.
2: Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like... Follow and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. All
1: right. Sweet. Yeah, that was good. Oh man. Hopefully, get, you got what you needed. I think
0: we kind of jumped all over the bullseye, but I think we—I think we hit it. So.